All we need is a place to be And a few good friends for some company If you'd like to stay, you don't have to leave We'll leave the lights on and the door unlocked If you drop on by, you don't have to knock We're happy to share whatever we've got Hi, I'm Clay, and this is Yarn About You A podcast where I get to chat with people I know and love As well as people I'd just like to meet and hear their story Yarn About You would like to pay respect to the traditional owners of the land in which this podcast is recorded, the Dark and Jung people, and acknowledge the elders, past, present and emerging, for their contribution and wealth of knowledge that they pass on from generation to generation. Today's guest is Mr James Charles. He's an actor and writer who's had an interesting creative life here in Australia and all around the world. James is an absolute gentleman, with a voice I could listen to all day. I'm also lucky enough to call him my friend. I hope you enjoy our yarn. James, welcome to Yarn About You. Thank you. It's always wonderful to speak to you, you know that. I say it's always about me anyway, so that's fine. (laughs) That's right. I seem to have a lot of friends that are like that for some reason. (laughs) But I want to go deep. I want to go go right back with this conversation. I want to learn about you um, and I want to learn about where you came from. So let's start with your parents. How... Tell me the story about your parents. Okay. Uh, my father was a 50-year-old Scot when he married my mother, who was a 19-year-old Irish lady. Okay. They met during the war, uh, or just after the Second World War, this is, in somewhere in London or thereabouts. And um, <laughs> they fairly quickly had a family of six children, of which I am the second. Um, I've always thought of myself as an Englishman in a way, uh, but um, Ancestry.com and their DNA tests prove that in fact, I'm not English at all. I may sound like an Englishman, that's the result of grammar school and uh, drama school in London, I think, Uh, but I'm 97% Irish and 3% uh, Iberian, i.e. Spanish, whatever. Um, because my mother was first-generation Irish. My father, though he was a Scot, his grandfather was an emigrant from Ireland to Scotland. So all of my DNA really goes back to Ireland, which suits me fine because it suits my temperament. (laughs) (laughs) Are Irish people cranky? Um, Yeah, thank you. (laughs) I was thinking more in terms of... uh, <laughs> sort of prone to romanticism and in yes. my drinking days prone to being maudlin and romantic in that sort of rather Irish way. Aha. Uh-huh. So so growing up in London, whereabouts in London did you grow up? I grew up in South London. Again, talking about my voice. If you listen to my three brothers, they're not exactly cockneys or anything, because South London isn't that, but they are much more London accent-wise than I am. Uh, Croydon in those days was a was a suburb of London. It's now really a part of greater London. But uh, yeah, we grew up there. My father was a school caretaker at that point. So we lived at, sort of within the grounds of a Catholic um, senior school and, uh, j- sorry, junior school, which is where we all went to school. Um, and then obviously I went to a different school when I was 11 years old. And then I went to a uh, a posh uh, Catholic grammar school. It always fascinates me about England, how uh, the, the different types of accents. We were listening to, um, Amanda and I were watching a show last night with um, a strong Liverpool accent. You could hardly understand them. 
Um, but but you know, in in England, you can go two hours um, either direction and get a completely different sound. It, it always fascinates me, and I always wonder how now that the world's getting a lot smaller with television and communication, whether that is slowly dying out. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure it is really in England. I mean, I have I don't go back that often since I've been in Australia. But um, I, I was talking, funny enough, to a lady here the other day about another project that I'm doing, and she was recognisably from the Newcastle region, very, very different accent than Liverpool, or I've got friends that live near Manchester, very different accent again. People from the Southwest, very different accent. And it's, it is quite surprising that given it's such a small island, um, that there are still enormous differences. And, well, and you know, you could, call, you could count Scotland. I mean, it's only 400 miles from London to Edinburgh. 700 kilometers or whatever that is um and yet the you could hardly have different you could hardly have a different voice than an english one and a scottish one you know? that's right so, in wales it's i mean i mean that's less than driving from here to brisbane from sydney yeah. to brisbane oh, so gosh. absolutely yeah yeah wales is you get to wales from london in two hours and then they all speak in a very different way look you <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of travel um yes. it was it was a major event for us to move out of Sydney an hour up the road how did you end up deciding that okay I'm going to move from from London where my life was to Australia on the other side of the world how did that happen well I first came to Australia um I'm not sure whether it was before you were born but pretty much so I think um in 1985 so how many years ago is that I was born in 1973 James but thank you very much so you were 12 and I was whatever age I was uh, in 1985 and I came to Australia uh, from from London with a play we had done three months in the West End in London and it was a very popular play it ran in the end for about 13 years in London um, but it used to change casts every three months because it was very popular and all the you know all the soap opera stars and all the sort of names of English television and theatre wanted to be in it was that um, uh, run run for your wife? Correct, run for your wife was its name. Uh, a really strange farce written by a lovely man called Ray Cooney, which was about a bigamous taxi driver. And I need go no further into that really. But yeah, it was a farce with you know different misunderstandings and different. Well, he had two different households. He had a wife and a household one side of the town, and the same the other side. But of course, you know the the shit hit the fan eventually, and it all went berserk. Um, but anyway, uh, I happened to be in the cast with a very small part and understudying um, the lead actor uh, in the play. And it was we were asked if we wanted to go to Australia with this production. But everybody had to say yes, they weren't going to do any recasting. And it was sort of this cast or nothing. As it happened, everybody was quite keen. So that was it. January, I think, 1985, we flew out of London where it was about minus two degrees and we flew into Perth, where it was about 45, I think. Absolutely. For the system. And we did six weeks in the Regent Theatre in Subiaco in Perth. Mm -hmm. The one and only theatre in the world where I've ever had my name on the board outside. Oh, wow. There was such a long facade. It was a sort of converted cinema that they put everybody's name on the board, um, including me and the young lady who was understudying the female roles in the thing so there we are so six weeks in Perth and then we came and did six weeks in Sydney but um, I started um, a love affair almost immediately in Perth 
um, with a young artist who was 10 years younger than me. And he was the, uh, he was the barbecue chef in the, on Saturdays in the um, hotel complex that we stayed in. We actually had little apartments in this complex. We had one each. And he and I fell in love, I mean, ridiculously, uh, almost immediately. And um, that had never happened to me before, although I'd had a couple of relationships before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a, that's a long story that stretches for the sort of 30 years ahead. But for the moment, let's just say that I had to go to Sydney in six weeks. And I said to him, why don't you come with me? And he said, well, I'll lose my job. And I said, well, that's not your job. You're an artist, which is what he is. Um, I said, you know, you can get any job doing barbecues, but, you know, whatever. Anyway, so he did come to Sydney with me and lost his job. And um, that was the beginning, as I said, of a long-term relationship, sometimes long distance. Sometimes he came to London. Sometimes I came here. Um, So I fell in love with him, but I also fell in love with the country. He was was born in the bushland outside Sydney, outside Perth, rather, um, and showed me, you know, some lovely spots you know along the coast of western australia down places like albany and the mm, beautiful over there harry forests and caves and things and i'd never seen anything like it in my life so it was a double whammy and if i could have done after the six months in sydney was up i would have stayed um and well i did stay but i couldn't stay long term because i was on a working visa that was extended um, a little bit past. Um, Stephen went back to Perth, but I had to. I had a friend who happened to be here at the time, uh, who I'd been at drama school with, and she and I went on a sort of two-month tour of the country, uh, which really cemented my love of this extraordinary, open, ancient landscape. I think I did. I can't quite remember, but I think I did twenty, or we did twenty-eight thousand kilometres in just a few weeks, maybe a month or something. Wow. Um, we went, we, this was all on Greyhound buses. We went from Sydney to Adelaide and then from Adelaide right up through the centre, stopping at uh, well, what was then called Ayers Rock. And to my shame, we climbed that rock. I would not do that these days. And of course, I call it as one should Uluru. Mm-hmm. Um, but up through there, up to Alice, and then further north up to Darwin. And then across from Darwin through Mount Isa to northern Queensland to Townsville, uh, and then back down that coast to Sydney. So sort of half the country. So the only part of the country I've never been to um, is the northern part, really, of Western Australia. So, yeah. so you were zigzagging backwards and forwards uh, from uh, London to Australia in that time. Um, I just yes. want to ask you before we get to Australia. Um, you did a couple of. Uh, quite well known to Australian uh, television shows over in uh, London. Uh, one of them being you did an episode of A Lower Low, I which did. which I love, and um, and it kind of makes me sad uh, when you watch shows like A Lower Low or Benny Hill or uh, the Paul Hogan show here um, that that you couldn't do those shows these days. But but the humour and the um, uh, the, the way that it's put together is to highlight that you know a lot of the racism and a lot of the, the stuff is wrong, uh, but but unfortunately I don't know we don't seem to get irony we don't seem to get the, the the comedy anymore but but those sorts of shows are the shows that shaped me and and I grew up with so I'm really interested to hear your experience on particularly a lower low and yeah. uh, you also did um, some work on ripping yarns directed by one of my heroes uh, Michael Palin from Monty Python. Um, yeah. Can you let me know the experience uh, working on those shows? Sure. 
Um, Hello, Hello was an interesting one because, yeah, I, I played a, a German corporal who was tasked with a little team of, of other soldiers to move um, some barrels from, I think, from René's cellar to somewhere else because we were confiscating them. They were supposed to be barrels of wine. The joke, which, of course, the audience knew, was that the, uh, the escaped British airmen were inside these barrels. Okay. We were actually moving them to safety by taking them out of the thing and they eventually escaped. So that was the sort of subplot that was going on. But I was, and I, you know, I, I enjoyed doing it, but I sort of I pushed up a bit against the director because I've, I wasn't doing it. My cod German wasn't silly enough. And I was finding it quite hard, you know. I can't remember many of the lines now, but I had to say at one point, uh, those are the barrels over there. That was my opening line. And I was saying something like, those are the barrels over there. And he's saying, yes, it's a bit French. He said, can you make it more German? <laughs> and, so, and I was trying really hard, but we had to do two or three takes. And I don't think at the end of the day that he was still very happy with it. I wasn't being quite sort of Hitler enough, really. And, and, you know, and I find that quite difficult, but, you know, it was a, it was an interesting experience. And it was, as you say, hugely popular. I mean, they had a, they had a permanent set in one of the film studios north of London. It might have been Elstree or somewhere, but, the, you know, the village square where the cafe and everything was, was a, was a permanent set, like a sort of film set, because they did, you know, they were filming their different things, different stories every week. Wow. Wow. Ripping Yarns was a much more interesting um, thing. Michael Palin wrote the stuff, six episodes, all different boys' own kind of stories. Uh, he wrote them. He didn't direct them, though he liaised a lot with the actual director. They, you know, they chatted a lot during the stuff. Uh, but of course, he also starred in all of them. Um, so the one that I was in, strangely enough, also had German collected German connections because it was called Escape from Stalag Luft 112B. <laughs> and it was a First World War drama set in a prisoner of war camp where the prisoners of war were us, the British. I was a British airman. Uh, I think we were all British airmen that had been captured you know, during the war. We were in the, in the um, uh, camp. But the story, the, the conceit of the story was that... Um, Michael Palin's character was a sort of obsessive compulsive escapee. He was forever trying to get out, digging tunnels, making, you know, false bottoms in things and constantly getting caught and beaten up. And he couldn't quite understand why we were, we, the rest of the British, were sort of, you know, quite chilled to um, stay, you know, in the prisoner of war camp where, you know, we were allowed to do our own thing. Um, the Germans looking after us were very deferential because I think the, their main officer was a sergeant or something, whereas we had a colonel or somebody in our group. So he was always being very deferential and being told, you can't come in here. This is the British quarters. You know, it was all very sort of, it was anti-German, even though we were the prisoners. Um, and at one point there was a wonderful actor called, um, oh gosh, no, I, um, no, can't remember. But the guy who played the lead, thing had some lovely lines like you know don't you know in a sort of cod german accent again funny enough don't speak to me like that you are the prisoners after all we run you know <laughs> you should get very cross because we were very superior to it anyway i mean there was a, a wonderful bit for instance we were playing cricket 
and somebody hits the ball over the fence into the field beyond and um oh that's the only ball we've got somebody get it so i say captain walker i said i'll get it so i climb over the fence i actually did this no stunt people actually climbed over this sort of fence and vaulted over it and ran across the field and threw the ball back and then came back over the fence and michael Palin's character sort of stood there in stunned silence the fact that i had been outside the camp and he couldn't understand why I had <laughs> running and escaped. Um, and at the, the end of the story is that everybody leaves. We, he's, in, he's been locked up for the nth time um, in a sort of solitary cabin. And then he wakes up the next morning to find that not only have all the British gone, but all the Germans have gone too. There's nobody there at all apart from him. So and that was the sort of punchline, if you like, him standing there looking bewildered and uh, finding that he's actually the only one in the camp and everybody else has gone. Um, but that was that was great fun filming it. We actually filmed it in a disused barracks in Salisbury Plain, which is still quite a big military area. And um, there were probably six of us in in my little group of officers, if you like, you know, in the, in the camp. And um, because we were near Salisbury, we were staying in a hotel in Salisbury and we went out, you know, each night as a group and of course, you know, a bunch of young men in their sort of late 20s or whatever, getting quite leery. And um, we were in a Chinese restaurant in Salisbury. And um, there were a bunch of girls having a sort of hen do at a party at a table nearby. And some of our lads um, got a bit drunk, I suppose, and were being a bit cheeky and, you know, chatting them up and so on. And the, uh, somebody complained to the management and the management, because of the way we were, uh, not because of the way we were dressed, but we all had, you know, military haircuts and things. So they thought we were actually a bunch of soldiers off duty from <laughs> the barracks. And in fact, they chased us down the street. It was really quite extraordinary. We were about, well, we were sort of about to leave and there was a fair bit of barracking and sort of, you know, argy-bargy going on, no physical violence at that point. But um, they summoned some other sort of friends from another restaurant down the way and, you know, arrived, you know, into the restaurant as we were sort of leaving and trying to get out. And I can't remember now, but it was sort of, you know, you soldiers, you're all the same when you're off duty, you know. Was, and, yeah. and they thought we were just, you know, drunken, misbehaving sailors and literally did chase us down the street. It was quite odd. Yeah. I was going to get beaten up for being a soldier when all I was, of course, was just a, a thespian that looked like a soldier. <laughs> So you zigzagged backwards and forwards uh, to Australia. Uh, mm. When was the decision made for you to settle in Sydney? What made you fall in love well, with Sydney? Um, that's yeah. As I say, um, the the uh, the affair that I was having with the with this guy Stephen uh, went on and off. As I say, for about eleven or twelve years. So um, lasted quite a long time. He came to London. He he studied for a while at the Royal Institute of Art in Royal College of Art in London and blah, blah. And then I came here and I'd stayed, you know, as a tourist for a while and back and forth and that kind of stuff. So um, so, so he stayed in Sydney? Uh, well, he either in Perth or in Sydney or in Canberra. Um, so he came, well, he came to London periodically for one, you know, maybe for a year once and then for 18 months another time and so on. So, you know, it was a long distance sort of affair that carried on, but it, it ran out of steam, you know, after 50, 13, 40, 15 years, something like that, um, which, you know, which was fine. It's, you know, it, um, well, 
it ties in in a way with I I was a very bad drinker in those days, mm-hmm. and it sort of tied in with when I finally got my drinking under control, but stopped drinking basically. Uh, I changed a bit as a person, and our relationship changed, therefore, and it sort of came to, as far as I was concerned, it came to a natural end, Um, and it was a bit messy, but we're the best of friends now. I actually went and visited him and his current partner, who they live south of Canberra now. I went and visited them just a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so after all this time, you know, we're still good friends, which is lovely. So um, talking talking about uh, drinking, yes. I've I've had some um, some history of uh, looking after a friend of mine who who had some issues with um, with alcohol, and it, it, it's it always fascinates me as well. Um, what when did you realize that you, that you had to change? Because it's a big it's a big decision to come to, and I'm I'm really proud of uh, your results. You've been sober for how long? Uh, if, I, if I manage it, I will have been sober for 27 years in about a fortnight. My anniversary, as I call it, is the 21st of April. So, yeah. It's, it, it, it's absolutely amazing to hear that, first of all. But, um, but, but, but what, what was the crux? What, what made you decide? Um, I think I, I was, you know, I was in my mid-40s then and... My life didn't really seem to be going anywhere. It had become very narrow and dark and depressive. And I thought I suffered from depression, which I don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know there are some people that do and, you know, respect to them, but I don't really suffer. I'm the opposite. I'm quite a glass half full person, not a glass half empty when in my natural state. But, you know, alcohol is an addictive drug. And I was able to fool myself for years that I didn't really have a problem with it because I didn't drink every day. I just, you know, I'm what they call a binge drinker mm-hmm. so that I could go weeks, sometimes even months without really drinking. And then I'd have a really bad time and have several days of drinking and blackouts and all sorts of things, you know. And I got, you know, I lost lost my license. They call it a DUI here, I think. Yeah. They call it that in Britain. But I lost my driving license twice for, you know, for being caught um, driving. And, you know, and I of those couple of times there were many 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 times I drove drunk and I thank goodness that you know that I never injured myself or anybody in the car or god forbid somebody you know outside the car when I was doing you know something which now I find almost inconceivable but at the time you know you just behave in a in a in a slightly insane way I think um and it, you know, it coloured my life. As I say, I, I just, I was getting into middle age. I thought that my life was unfulfilled. I wasn't in a relationship anymore. I didn't seem to have success in work things. I wasn't happy with where I lived, all those sort of things. And I thought that that was why I drank. Whereas, of course, the opposite was true. It was the fact that I was drinking and the way that it affects your mental state that, um, that was the cause of it. And then one day almost by accident and I found myself at the end of my tether and I called a helpline um not um not Alcoholics Anonymous or anything like it never it never occurred to me that I was an alcoholic because I didn't understand anything about alcoholism um I thought that you know I was just a middle-aged poor old thing whose life wasn't very happy and that that's why I drank you know um so I rang a helpline and they gave me an address to go to. And to my astonishment, it turned out to be an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Um, and that first day, um, 
I found I, I didn't really want to go in, but while I was mulling that over in my head, my feet kept moving, if you like, and I found myself in this very strange church hall off the back of Oxford Street in central London. Um, and people were sharing, as the AA term goes, people were talking about it in, um, and talking about stuff that I realised had been going on in my head since I was a teenager, you know, about having a sort of slightly skewed view of the world and my place in it and all sorts of stuff um, that's hard to describe, but which, you know, people who acknowledge, who acknowledge themselves as alcoholic understand totally. I mean, I've been, I've been searching for something, can I say spiritual, because I'm not at all a religious person, but I've been searching for some kind of spiritual connection since I was a teenager. Um, and I found something of that in AA, that first day that I went. And even more astonishingly, I didn't pick up a drink that night. Um, and I haven't picked up an alcoholic drink since that day, all those years ago, which is you know, considering I'm about the same length of time sober now as I was drinking. If you think that I was abusing drink in my late teens and got in when I was 25, uh, 45, that'd be about 26, 27 years. And I'm nearly 27 years sober now. So it's almost like half my life on each side. Wow. And I know which one I prefer because, you know, my life these days is an extraordinary adventure as opposed to a rather despairing dead end you know it's absolutely incredible and your, your dedication to aa uh, still lasts today i know that and um and i know that you found your support people and um yeah it's such a wonderful story to hear you know that, that oh, people yeah. it's always such a big step to call a helpline to start but yeah. um but i know with depression or with addiction it's um it's such an important step to take but it's something that you have to make in your head to yeah. take that step yeah there's, I mean, AA is full of cliches and, you know, stuff. Most of, you know, most of them are cliches because they're truisms, you know. And one of the ones that, that I identify with is that it is, a, it is a solution for people who want it, not for people who need it. There are many, many, many people who need it, but you've got to actually want it in order for it to work, you know, because unless you do, unless you hit that classic phrase, unless you hit your rock bottom, and are desperate enough to pick up that phone, as you just said, then, you know, it, nothing really happens, you know. And, you know, and I've watched many people, you know, over the years come in, get better. It's amazing how resilient the human brain and the human body is. You know, you can, you can bounce back, if you like, really quite quickly, you know, in two or three weeks, people with a severe drink problem, you know, can feel so much better really quickly. But the trouble is, you can feel so much better to the degree that you want to celebrate that. Mm. And of course, uh, sadly, a lot of people celebrate that by having a drink. Have you, um, in the early days, um, I know that, that if, if you come and stay here, for example, um, Amanda will forget and offer you a glass of wine and it's not a problem. You always say, no, 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 that's fine. Um, but, but in the early days, was that difficult to, to knock back or to stop? Do you know, it wasn't really because I sort of, you know, I wasn't like, a, you know, in my early 20s or whatever. I, you know, had many years of abusing it. And, and it was such a relief to realise that there was an answer. As I said at that first meeting, I felt there's something here that's an answer to that. So it wasn't really difficult, you know. And I'm not, I'm not a particularly social person anyway. So my life hadn't been... Um, a round of you know pubs and clubs and bars and and stuff and dance halls with 
you know, with fellow alcoholics or, or whatever. Um, so I wasn't a regular attend. Well, that's not entirely true. I did go to my local bar, my posh apartment building that I lived in, had a bar um, in the building. So it wasn't very far to sort of stagger home or indeed be escorted home by the sort of night staff um, on more than one occasion. Um, so, but there was, you know, there was a bunch of people that I drank with there. And when I stopped drinking, um, I just never saw them again because that was the only place I ever had seen them. I never, if I ever saw them around the building, we just sort of nod and pass by and that was it. So I didn't really find it, you know, hard. Um, and, you know, I didn't really have dinner parties where people drank that sort of thing. So it wasn't for me. I mean, it was very, it was, you know, almost a charmed life really. But, you know, but I have had, a, I always think, quite a sort of lucky and charmed life. So in, in my drinking days, I wouldn't have thought that. But now, in retrospect, I realise that, you know, you know, I'm not a religious person at all. So I don't really, you know, I don't think of in terms of like a divine intervention or whatever. But um, I do think that I've probably got some kind of guardian angel or guiding spirit in or around me that's, um, that's allowed me to do some really lovely things over the years. And one of those is, you know, getting sober and, and turning my life into quite an adventure. Anyway, the question you asked me is how did I end up here? Was yeah, that's right. Let's go back there. <laughs> I, um, uh, the time goes, as you know, as you get older, the years seem to go by faster and faster. And um, I didn't, you know, even in sobriety, I didn't um, start any more relationships, really. I, I didn't have another major relationship. I haven't had one for a long time. But as I say, I'm quite a lone sort of character anyway, so I'm not unhappy with that at all. Um, but I carried on. Um, I, I sort of drifted out of my chosen career, my acting career, um, because I, I got to the point where I was a bit, this is after I'd been to Australia and gone home, yeah? Um, I, I never really seemed to pick up a sort of um, a dynamic of getting, you know, plenty of work or whatever, like many, many actors mm. don't manage to do it. And so I never managed to really make enough money to live on. And by the time you get into your sort of mid, late 30s or whatever, you start doing other stuff, or I did. And I ended up working with a friend who had quite a successful event and exhibition business. And I became what you might call a producer, really, of those kind of shows. I was the one who... Um, built the show or supervised the building of an exhibition or event and ran our office when it was open and then took the show down again. You know, if you think in terms of, you know, exhibitions in, you know, conference or exhibition centres, that kind of stuff. Most um, trade shows rather than public stuff, but, you know, conventions and whatever. Anyway, I drifted into that um, for a long time, um, probably for 20 years or more. Because, you know, for the first time in my life, I could actually afford to pay the bills and my rent without worrying about that. As time went on, circumstances changed and I ended up, um, I moved out of London. I became a bit sort of fed up with living in London and I moved out by the seaside for a change. And I, I found myself working in a little country house hotel being the night manager. Um, but I was also still doing a little bit of work in the exhibition business with um with an, an older mentor of mine, if you like, who should have retired, but he didn't really want to. So I used to do a bit of work for him just to keep his little business ticking over from his home. So whereabouts was that? 
that was in the west of London in a place called Kew on the way from London out to Heathrow Airport. Okay. Um, and I'd started working with him and my old friend in the exhibition business on a different project, maybe 10 years earlier. Um, but we, you know, paths had, had diverged. The exhibition business in, in well, anywhere is, can be quite entrepreneurial when you have these small companies around because the, the, the idea is that you start a new exhibition, you grow it a bit, and then a bigger organization will buy it from you and you make money and they take the show away and they make money and everybody's happy. And that's sort of how we've been for a few years. But as I say, my, my older mentor, you know, was virtually at retirement age and just was just running a little office from his home. And I used to go there um, just eventually one day a week just to pay his bills and keep things ticking over. Um, so I'd become a sort of office manager, PA, all rolled into one. And we didn't really do any event business anyway. <laughs> then we had a little bit of a falling out. I, I won't bore you with the story because I'm not sure that I quite understand how it happened anyway, but we did have a falling out. And I said, look, you know, it seems to me we've come to the end of a road here. You don't really need me. You haven't needed me for years and I don't feel, you know, welcome here. So I'm going to go. So I did. And I went back down to my little place down by the sea. Um, and I thought to myself, what am I doing with my life? You know, I was getting on for 60. And I thought, what am I doing with my life? I'm here, I'm doing, you know, three nights running this little hotel. I'm now not working with Richard. I've moved out of London because I'm sort of over London. I'm looking for something else. And this little voice said to me, go back to Australia. Now, just to qualify that, whilst I hadn't, you know, been in a relationship with Stephen for all, you know, for the previous, God knows how many years, mm -hmm. I kept in touch. But I also had a very close friendship with a lady who I had been at drama school with many years earlier, an Australian lady. Brenda. Brenda. Um, who, I, I, when I'd gone out to visit, I'd gone out to visit her and sometimes Stephen, but sometimes just Brenda because we were sort of, well, I, fe I felt we were sort of soulmates. We were more or less the same age. Our birthdays are in the same month. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and we get on, you know, have always got on really well. So I'd gone and visited her and visited her and I suddenly this idea came into my head, go to Australia. So I sent her, an, I think it was probably an email, well, quite, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was an email now I think about it. I sent her an email saying, listen, I'm coming out again soon, uh, if that's all right, but I'm only buying a single ticket. And she said, oh, okay then. Um, so that's exactly what I did. I came out in whatever, March of that year. Given that I'd, I'd sort of finished the, the stuff with uh, my exhibition friend in January. Uh, so by March, I, if you like, wound up my affairs in Britain, gave up the rental of the house I was living in, sold off all my bits, put a lot of stuff into storage and took a flight out um, and uh, came and, and well, stayed with some friends in, Austra in, in Western Australia, funnily enough, briefly, not Stephen, but some other friends, mutual friends, mm -hmm. and then came across to Sydney. And, you know, and we just picked up, as old friends do, picked up my, you know, sort of... Uh, friendship with Brenda you know after I think I'd been here I hadn't been out for about eight years before that I think I'd been out I was out for the um centenary 2000 mm -hmm. Olympic Games and then I'd come out a couple of years after that like maybe 2002 so we'd gone there'd been quite a big gap in between that and then so it was 2000 and 
11 when I came back again. Okay. Um, sort of moved in with Brenda and we were in Gladesville at the time in Sydney. And, you know, we just, you know, we just picked up our friendship. I, you know, hung around and did stuff, became, you know, sort of did the, did the garden and, you know, did, you know, the sort of, did the man, the sort of man things around the building. Um, and, uh, all, you know, it all worked very well. Um, as it turned out, Brenda was looking to move, which she did. Um, and I organised, if you like, most of the moving stuff, you know, the packing of stuff and the van and all that kind of stuff. And we moved up to the central coast. But the time flew by and it got to, um, I suppose, uh, around October of that year. And we've often chatted because our birthdays are within a week. We've often had a sort of annual, even when I was in England and Brenda was in Australia, we've had a lot of chatting about, you know, oh, how's, you know, how's life going? What are we doing? Sort of appraisal of how your life is. And we got to that period and I was allowed to come and go for a year because I had a sort of multiple visitor visa. And but it came to that sort of end of that six months or whatever. And we said, this is sort of working okay, isn't it? Um, and I said, yes, but, you know, if it's going to carry on, I'm going to have to think in terms of whether I can stay here or not. Um, so I went to New Zealand so I could extend my visa because each time I came in, I got another six months, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that a couple of times. And um, we moved in the meantime up to the Central Coast and, you know, talked about it. And then and I started a process of, you know, getting residency or whatever. That process um, took a couple of years um, just to get the um, sort of permanent residency. And then another couple of years after that, um, and eventually I got citizenship on the on the basis that Brenda and I were, you know, were sort of long-term companions and mm. we're going to drift, drift into sort of gentle elderly, whatever, as sort of mutual companions and support. We've never been in a relationship beyond that. Um, but, you know, I was quite happy with that, you know, at my sort of age. I was quite happy to sort of settle in that kind of way. But not long after that, maybe a year after that, things sort of changed. And I realised that, you know, maybe this wasn't how Brenda saw the future. And indeed it wasn't. Um, so I struck out on my own and ended up uh, where I now live. In uh, in the heart of Sydney. And you were working with um, uh, Sydney City Council doing a job which I think is Perfect for you. Uh, yes, I. I mean, initially, I, I wasn't allowed to work, and then I took a job as a concierge in um, residential buildings rather than hotels, which was a bit like what I'd been doing in Britain before I left. But yes, out of that, while I was working there, the opportunity because I've always loved, you know, Australia and Sydney and the history of the place, the history of the colony, and that sort of stuff. Um, I, you know, I've, I've got a, I surprised myself with how much I know, um, and I was able to apply for and got a job as a visitor services officer, very grand sounding title, with the city of Sydney. Um, yeah, so I was based in the town hall or a customs house down at the pointy end, at Circular Quay. Um, and yeah, we, um, the job of that department is to engage with visitors to the city and help them to have you know, to have a, a good visit and a good holiday and hopefully, you know, uh, suggest things that maybe they wouldn't have thought to do or that they wouldn't know to do because, you know, it wouldn't be in the sort of standard guidebooks and things. And and that was great. Yeah, I mean, because I've, I've travelled quite a lot in different places myself. And as I say, because 
because of my interest in sort of history and local stuff here, it was a very, um, yeah, very lovely, very rewarding job. Absolutely. And I remember you saying how busy it was whenever uh, the boats came in. Yes, indeed. And then, of course, the boats didn't come in two and a half years ago or whatever. Um, actually, is it two and a half? Or, yeah. Two, um, it feels like 10, but yeah, whatever. Yeah, but yeah, two years ago, the boats stopped coming. So, of course, the visitors stopped coming by boat or by plane because of COVID, as we know. Um, so the job stopped. So I know, I know that um, I know that you're a very creative person. Um, I first met you in 2018, where you will forever be the Sherlock Holmes to my Dr. John Watson. Uh, when we did the uh, Baskerville, the the uh, the Sherlock Holmes play at Wawa Little Theatre, which was amazing for me, it was my first kind of stepping back onto the stage after many many years. And um, I think the day that we first met, we clicked and we became firm friends. And uh, it was an amazing play. It was such. It was a fast farce. So it was. Um, it was such a fast play to be part of. But um. But yeah, I had an absolute pleasure doing it. But um. But I know that you being a creative, and we've been to see each other's plays um, since then. And then all of a sudden, in, two, in twenty twenty, the world died. Yeah. How did you, as a creative? handle COVID, the isolation, the, the not being able to go anywhere? Um, well, it, I mean, partly, partly because, as I said earlier, as I touched on earlier, I'm quite a lone bird anyway, so I'm comfortable living on my own um, here. And, and through, the, through the pandemic, um, it didn't really make a great deal of difference in a way. I still was able to go out um, on my bike or walking um, and around the area, you know, and obviously I kept away from anybody else. But in that kind of term, um, I was able to, um, you know, to, to, to maintain a certain amount of health and get some fresh air and so on. So there wasn't really an issue with that. Um, the creative stuff was slightly more difficult, but um, just, you know, because of, I suppose, the bunch of people that I knew and so on, both here and in Britain. And I've got some old friends in the theatre that, um, that, well, that live in New York and in England and so on. Um, and a lot of people quite quickly started doing online things mm. like play readings of Shakespeare. And Shakespeare is one of my faves, as, as you know. Um, so, you know, I, I was able, because of this wonderful thing called Zoom that came out almost immediately, seemed to me anyway almost overnight we had this zoom thing that's you know that's got more and more finessed as time's gone on but yeah I remember going through you know doing loads of those kind of experiences I mean there was no actual work happening because everything was shut as you say but people found I mean I never did any of the organization of these things but I was more than happy to tune in to you know people doing play readings in New York or in London or here in Sydney and that sort of fulfilled a certain amount of um, creative stuff and then out of that it suddenly dawned on me that you know I maybe didn't need to to keep looking for work as in terms of jobs beyond acting I mean we haven't talked about acting much since I since I came here in 2011 but um it occurred to me that, you know, maybe I didn't need to keep looking at websites and in between lockdowns and sort of opens and closes and so on. I ended up doing some work for uh, the um, electoral committee, you know, doing sort of 
working on the census during the lockdown period, in between different lockdowns. So I ended up working for the Australian Electoral Committee and the Bureau of Statistics in that kind of thing. So I've, I've been doing those kind of things, thinking I've got to keep earning money, you know. Mm. Um, but it almost as if I suddenly realised that that was a habit that I'd had, you know, most of my working life, and that maybe I could work a different way. Mm-hmm. And I was really fortunate that because I was working for the city of Sydney, um, I was able to get the apartment that I live in now, which is, you know, run by a housing trust, if you like. So it's affordable housing. And I realised that um, if I got an occasional paid acting job, um, and I, I also now get a pretty small but you know reasonable pension from England because I've been a taxpayer in England all my life, that I could actually survive, you know, albeit modestly, but, but you know, I, because I don't, I don't socialise that much, I don't go out eating or, or drinking or whatever, my only really expe- my only expense other than living expenses is I do like to travel, and that's been curtailed anyway because mm. of the pandemic. So I decided that, you know, maybe I didn't need to keep looking for work. And um, I thought, you know what, I might do something creative. I always had a be in my bonnet about writing stuff um, and I tried over the years I've, I've often written bad poetry and I tried, <laughs> I tried over the years to write you know a little play or something like that but I've always got to the end of you know act one or scene two or whatever and sort of run out of steam and I thought well you know maybe I need to um, not be quite so arrogant and get some training so after a gap of 40 years or so from when I finished drama school, I enrolled myself via the university with Macquarie University and started studying towards a BA in English and creative writing. Wonderful. Which was just extraordinary. So yes, yeah, so I started studying this and within weeks, I learned some really interesting stuff about, you know, creative writing and how you could approach it in a different way, which wasn't about having an idea and trying to write about it, but basically it was about sitting, um, as, as I've often read about writers saying, about sitting and looking at a piece of paper, or in this case, looking at a screen, until something sort of pops into your head and then start writing about that and not think about where it's going or what it's going or what's going to happen and just let it come almost like, you know, like a sort of stream of consciousness thing, I suppose. And that was a major um, eye-opener to me because I suddenly found myself, you know, writing stuff I wasn't expecting to write or about things I wasn't expecting to write. And it was a really lovely learning curve, you know. It's a fascinating process, isn't it? When you're you're in the zone, when something comes and you start to get on a roll with it uh, how yeah. it just comes out I, I've, I've written I've only written a couple of short um, short films actually um, yeah. but uh, but each time I've done that uh, once you're in the zone and you've got it it, it just kind of comes out in the first first night well, um, they, the, the characters you know sort of almost appear and write themselves you know which is quite extraordinary you know people start you know well people either people you haven't even expected to be in the story suddenly appear as part of it it's quite um, yeah, it's quite liberating and and exciting but in, in a way quite hard to do because it doesn't to me it doesn't come naturally yet so I don't entirely 
trusted, if you like, or I'm, you know, I'm working on trusting it, you know. So when um when you came back to Australia, there were various yeah. roles in theatre. Um, I know you've done some yeah. television commercials. You've done some um some comparing where you're hosting things. But but one role in particular, which I love you to talk about, is your role with Convict Footprints, which uh, which not only was scripted, but there was a lot of ad libbing that you had to do with that role. Very much so. Yeah. Um, we had moved from uh, the city up to up to the central coast. And there was a little article in the local paper about convict footprints who were setting up a joint venture with Gosford Council and they were going to do what you might call reenactment theatre um, about early parts of the colony. And they were looking for convicts and people like that. And Brenda said to me, oh, look at this, you know, acting, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, yes, but, you know, convicts didn't live to be, you know, 60 plus. So what's the point of that, you know? Well, she said there must have been other people you know, around. I thought, you know, there must have been. There were governors and administrators and things. So I wrote a slightly cheeky letter to this organisation saying exactly that, you know. I see you're looking for convicts, but, you know, surely there are older people, you know. Governor Darling in 18 thingy was 59 or whatever. And I obviously struck a chord because they asked me in for an audition and I went to, I think I went to Gosford Town Hall, if there is such a thing, or something like that. And the a representative of the council was there and two guys from Convict Footprints. And we talked and, you know, about history and blah, 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 blah. And then one of them said, can you do a Scottish accent? So I said, ah, my father was a Scot. Mm-hmm. And I instantly started reading them something from a Shakespeare book that they had there in my father's rather gruff Scottish, sort of rather um, bad-tempered voice, which is the way that I remembered him very clearly. And they sort of smiled and said, oh, that's really interesting. Anyway, long story short, Thomas Mitchell, later to be Sir Thomas Mitchell, but at the time not, Major Thomas Mitchell, uh, was the Surveyor General of the colony in the late 20s, 1820s. And he was an irascible Scot who his reputation for wanting everything to be straight lines and above board and whatever was, um, he was well known for that. Um, but he was a very good engineer, cartographer, and road builder. And he was employed by the colony um, of New South Wales to help to build or to supervise the building of major roads for the first time from Sydney to Newcastle, for instance, the thing that's called the Great North Road, plus the Great Western Highway through to uh, the mountains and the Great Southern Highway down to Goulburn and places like that. And that was his job. And Convict Footprints decided they would tell some of that story on a part of the Great North Road that still exists from Wiseman's Ferry going up into the hills beyond in the National Park there. And because of the, because of the fact that it was almost immediately redundant because they started using steamers to get up the coast from Sydney to Newcastle in the 1820s, Um, it became obsolete pretty quickly and was sort of just left, really. But it was so well built, good old Mitchell and his chain gangs of convicts, that that to this day, it's still in pretty good shape. There's some wonderful masonry, some fabulous sort of stone buttresses holding up the side of the road as it winds its way up the mountain. And Convict Footprints wanted to tell some of that story. Uh, So basically... 
uh, people would pay, you know, to be part of that audience, but they would be treated as visitors inspecting the site of the building. And they'd be sent up from the gate at the bottom of the road. And when they came round the corner, they'd be transported back in time because they would be met by Major Mitchell and his soldiers escort and thanked for coming to visit and inspect this newly built road and follow us up and we'll explain it to you. And they would get a history lesson in the building of the road, how the drains were built and all that kind of stuff. They'd meet um, convicts working on the road. These are other actors, obviously. They'd meet one convict trying to escape who was chiseling his name into the side of the road and got caught and so on, up until we got to a, a, a place at the top, which had been a sort of rest spot for the convicts back in the old days. And there they would get some tea and some damper bread and then be left with a bunch of the convicts who would then tell some of their story. And, and to me, it was, you know, it was historically fascinating because the guy who wrote it, a very talented actor, producer, director, called Stephen Hockley, had used verbatim um, reports and letters and so on from the time so that people who told their story were more or less telling it in their own words. And, and, and had, you were there. You were there on the site where it happened. We were on the site of where some of this stuff had actually taken place. Oh, actually, the guy, yes, we, just a bit of theatrical stuff, the guy who had been trying to escape, who'd been caught down the road, was, of course, escorted up with us and was given a pretty convincing flogging before the, before the convicts told their story. Um, and that was, yeah, that was a, an interesting um, bit of techni technical stuff because we'd had, to, we had to, I mean, I had nothing to do with it really, but uh, we had to um, work out sort of um, a convincing lashing that looked like it was, you know, uh, drawing blood and all that kind of stuff. And it was, yeah, it was a theatrical experience for the audience. And then the convicts told their story and then that would finish and we'd escort them, if you like, back down the road, thank them for coming and hand them back to the parks department at the gate down at the bottom and that would be the end of it. But uh, um, yeah, that that ran on and off for about four seasons. We'd do it twice a year for a couple of weekends, two or three weekends. And then out of that, the comic footprint started to move to other places so that we did, um, we did one production out of Castle Hill, which was about the, um, the Irish rebellion that took place a few years later. And I did a couple of other things with them. And then, you know, Comic Province is not running at the moment, really. Um, but they did other stuff at Manly, at the uh, quarantine station and at Cockatoo Island and so on. So it's, and it will, it's obviously gone into abeyance during the uh, close down, but it might well operate again. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed it because, you know, the role was, I was channeling my father, which was good for, for me, was sort of quite an interesting um, experience. But I was also, you know, doing some educational historical stuff which was true and as you say there was lots of opportunity for not so much interaction with the audience although sometimes we did get um, those kind of things when we did school groups sometimes um, that was quite fascinating because of course they most of the kids would have things uh, they'd have their phones with them and they'd be looking up references that I was making say and then showing them to me and I'm, of course, having to express astonishment as how they managed to get moving, moving pictures on these <laughs> tiny frames. You have to sort of, because you have to always, you know, keep in character. Absolutely. Oh, it'd be a wonderful, um, wonderful opportunity for any actor to be able to do something like that and to, um, 
and to prove your your chops, including your mutton chops, which you had to put on. Um, you had the most amazing sideburns in that. I have to put the, a picture up on the Facebook page uh, yeah, for people they, to see. But they, they got better and better. They were pretty ropey in the beginning, but I went <laughs> and got some, you know, proper ones. There's a there's a very good wig and facial hair shop just off Oxford Street in Sydney. Um, and I, I had a couple of sets of mutton chop whiskers from them, which I used, you know, over and over again. I would take them home and religiously sort of clean them and get them ready for the next time and then stick them on again. And I, you know, every time I did it, I got a bit better at applying them so they looked more and more convincing. You know? mm. In the beginning, there were one or two, talking of school parties, I, I remember in, my, in the early days, my first set of whiskers, which were not really very good because they were, I don't think they were homemade, but I bought them online and they weren't that good. Um, and I was conscious one time, I was walking down the road after we'd done the whole thing to the party of school kids. And I suddenly, I felt, it almost felt like a, an insect was fluttering against my <laughs> oh, cheek. Oh no. And I realised that it was one of my whiskers was coming unstuck. <laughs> so I had to spend the rest of the time holding it on there. And I was quite frightened that one of the, you know how observant children can be. Absolutely. So I, the kids was going to you know come straight up to me and say they're not real whiskers you know <laughs> but, uh, mercifully that moment passed my favorite moment for silly stories was we were we had stopped at one point um to look at some of the construction of the stonework or whatever and suddenly there was this there was a bell rang in the distance and a voice that sort of said look out coming through and it was two guys on mountain bikes um which you were allowed to have mountain bikes on the Great North Road, but you were supposed to walk them down. Mm -hmm. But anybody, myself included, who is a bike rider, would never give up the opportunity of barreling down the hill, you know, from wherever they had come from. Uh, so they were hurtling down this hill. And we, the crowd, if you like, which was probably 20 people or so, and myself, we sort of parted and allowed them through the middle. And they came through really quite speedily. They didn't say anything, but they shot through. And there was this sort of silence. And I could see people in the audience sort of looking at me, at Thomas Mitchell, to think, you know, well, how is he going to react to that? Because they were used to me chatting, you know, to them. Mm -hmm. And I just, I looked sort of as if I was slightly startled and bemused and said to the... Um, military sergeant who was the escort at the time a uh, captain i think it was actually and i said that's very strange captain i said but i don't know about you but i think i've just had an hg wells experience <laughs> like a sort of you know some an event that had happened from the past and come through or something <laughs> and, and people laughed and we just carried on you know but it was uh, i remember that we I don't know where that came from. Do you know what I mean? That wasn't scripted. Yeah, I was yeah. expecting to say it. But you sort of, you end up, you've done this too, I'm sure. You end up in character and and you can, if you're sufficiently, with, you know, if you know your character sufficiently well, you can react to anything in a sort of appropriate way. You know? Absolutely. And we've got, we've got a lot of um, amazing uh, characters over the years in Australian um, theatre and television, like your Dame Edna's and your, um, your Norman Gunston's who... The character just becomes its own its own character, its own um, personality. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Mr. Charles, can I talk to you about your latest health issue, which I know tomorrow you're going into hospital. Can you tell me how you found out about the issue that you have at the moment? Yeah, yes, I can. Um, strange, but true. Um, 
last year, I spent about June or July of last year, mm -hmm. I became conscious of the fact that I seemed to be getting more headaches than I would normally get. When I was young, I used to suffer from migraines, but that you know stopped probably in my 30s or 40s, so a long time ago. But I knew what migraines were like, and I started getting this rather specific pain in my head, sort of uh, you know on the crown of my head, so you know quite high up, always in the same place. Um, and it just it took a little while, like you know if something's going strange with your body, it takes a little while for it to become a conscious feeling. So I thought, that's odd, I'll, I'm gonna monitor this. So I suppose throughout July and August of last year, I kept a note in my diary or whatever of when these headaches arose. And as I say, they were always in the same place. They were always about the same kind of intensity and they weren't a migraine because it didn't have the other symptoms that migraines have. It just was this pain in my head and it would keep me awake sometimes at night or it would happen during the day. And um, so I kept monitoring. And after a couple of months, it seemed to me as though it was happening every four or five days, mm -hmm. which seemed strange. So I think I had mentioned it right back at the beginning of the year once to my doctor, because when I was having an online chat with him, because we weren't going in at that point, so it was all like telecom, telecommunication. Um, when I mentioned it to him and said I had been monitoring it, he said, oh, yes, you mentioned that back in... February and he'd obviously made a note which I'd forgotten and I said you know it seems you know odd and he said well yes he said you know let's get a scan just to be on the safe side so that's exactly what we did and to his surprise and mine it revealed that I actually had four aneurysms in my head in my brain or close you know located in the in the masses of arteries and things that go around your brain and head but the first thing that one should say as he said to me and as the neurosurgeon said to me is that the headache that I was getting at the top is not in any way connected to the aneurysms because aneurysms as some of the listeners may know do not have symptoms they just are and most people only find out they have an aneurysm uh, if it bursts because then you can get bleeding on the brain and depending on how big and severe the aneurysm is it can be very much life-threatening. So um, so, so what's the what was the feeling you were feeling in the top of your head? What was that coming well, from? Again, we don't know. There are many, you know, if you look online, you do Dr. Google, it'll tell you there are many headaches that arise and people don't really know what they are or whatever. But there are a lot of tension headaches around. And my conclusion is um, we have to come back to where we are now. And the fact that because I'm having surgery, I had to stop studying this semester. So I stopped studying at the end of February because I was originally going to have my operation in early March, but it's been postponed till tomorrow. And as a result of that, I'm not spending maybe four hours a day in front of my computer screen, reading and studying and doing things like that. And I realized that I haven't had any headaches. Ah, okay. So, so it, it, it's absolutely amazing that you were able to dis discover something that is potentially life-threatening that you're able to solve now. Yes, that particular headache, you know, is I think is just a tension headache caused by my arms and shoulders being at the wrong angle when I'm sitting working, you know. And because I'm not doing that, because I've stopped studying and stuff, those, those headaches have stopped. But obviously, in the meantime, the aneurysms, which were spotted, um, need to be dealt with because if they do rupture, then, you know, obviously I'm in, uh, I'm in trouble. 
So what, what are your feelings today going into the operation tomorrow? What's, what's going to be involved in the actual operation? Okay. Um, so having, having discovered on the initial scan that I had these aneurysms, I then went to um, a neurosurgeon who sent me for another scan where they shoot um, colored stuff up into your brain to absolutely identify where they are. Um, and then, you know, and he said to me, well, you know, they have to be, obviously they have to be operated on. There are three smallish ones and one quite large one, which is sort of above and behind my left eye. Um, and um, my feelings, I don't know. I, I have to say, I said this to a friend earlier and it's absolutely true. Um, as the week has gone on, um, I've developed the same kind of feelings that I would have if I was rehearsing a play and opening tomorrow. Mm -hmm. There's a certain amount of butterflies and uh, not fear at all. There's a sort of nervous energy, excitement almost about uh, what's going to happen because it's an experience I've never had before. But it, that's the nearest thing I can relate it to is how it feels when you've got an opening night happening. But it's, you know, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, who knows? But, you know, my as I touched on probably right back in the beginning when we were talking about drinking and so on, I mean, since I since I stopped all that stuff and, and have a much more sort of positive and grown-up, I see it anyways, grown-up attitude towards life, it's part of the adventure of life, you know? And... Um, extraordinarily as i think i said to you um <laughs> considering i'm an actor um my neurosurgeon then rang me a week ago to say that they were apparently resurrecting a program that used to be made here some years ago called rpa tv yes with the hospital that i'm going to the royal prince alfred and that they'd asked him if he had any interesting cases coming and he said that yes i was one of his interesting cases so I've had a television crew here in my little apartment in Piermont, and I met with them yesterday when I went for a pre-operation um, scan, the latest scan, and had bloods taken, and then had a little interview with the neurosurgeon himself when we talked about tomorrow. Um, and they'll be there tomorrow when I go in for pre-thingy, and they'll be filming the operation. So at some point in the future, I'll actually be able to see inside my own head which is quite an exciting thing it's amazing because most most of the time people go in hospital and they're, they're asleep they don't know what happens but you're going to have um the whole thing documented which is fascinating it's incredible that you're going to be able to have that on the other side absolutely and you know and yeah i and for me the most interesting thing is because i because i'm you know because uh, i'm a professional actor if you like i'm i'm comfortable in front of the cameras and things like that so we've been able to have quite fun just, you know, wandering around talking about stuff like you and I are talking now while they, you know, while they've been filming, you know, and talking to me about stuff, you know, for the programme. So they've been very pleased. I'm not being, I hope, arrogant about it, but they've been very pleased to run in to somebody like me who's not phased by, you know, mm. having cameras moving around while he's talking because, you know, you and I both know that, you know, you spend a lot of time sitting around waiting while people adjust lights and stuff like that, you know. Um, and, and an average person wouldn't know that, would wonder what was happening, or indeed would be more nervous. I mean, when, I, mm. when we saw the neurosurgeon yesterday, he was, you know, obviously 
far less used to having people say, oh, could you just do that again and say so-and-so with it? Whereas I'm sort of, you know, chilled with that kind of stuff. So it's an, it's an interesting experience all around, really. Absolutely. So you'll be in hospital for a few days? Yeah, they think, I mean, the operation, I'll probably be first in tomorrow because they think the operation will be about five hours. Uh, and then I'm in intensive care tomorrow night, which is standard for mm -hmm. when you have brain surgery. They'll do a scan on Friday. And if everything's okay or appears to be okay, then they will remove whatever tubes and pipes I have in me at that point. Um, and then it will be at least three days afterwards. So I'm sort of counting Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and probably Monday, Tuesday, because again, it depends on how quickly I respond and how they, you know, as you, I'm sure you know, when you're in hospital, they want to get you out as soon as possible, not just to free up the bed, but also because it's better for you yeah. to get yeah. as soon as possible. So I'll be up and running as soon as they'll let me be up and running. But it will be, I would think, Monday or Tuesday before I'm actually out. Um, and then I'm going to a friend's place who's got a spare room and, and he's going to look after my, um, my welfare for a few days until I can look after myself and come home. Well, my friend, um, you know we love you very much and um, we're thinking of you tomorrow and Thanks. I look so forward to seeing you when you get out of hospital yeah. and, um, and getting you on this podcast again soon. Okay. Yes, part two. After part two. Yes, yes, the so aftermath. I bet. I hope they don't do what they they all. Well, I know they will. Where um, where you go into the operation and then you have to wait till after the um uh, the next episode to find out whether you're okay. But at least this time I'll know you're fine. So yeah, I'll feel I feel a lot better. <laughs> I suppose there'll be. There, I mean, it's not the program's not going to just be about me. It's going to be yeah. you know, a series of vignettes of different people. Whether it carries on beyond one episode, I know not. I have no idea. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll see, and then you know, I'm sure they talk, certainly they talk about uh, filming my recovery path, if you like, and well, they can't do that until I'm recovering. So it must presumably come in a later program. You know, meanwhile, James is back in his apartment in Piermont, and here he is, and then there'll be a picture of me sitting in the corner drooling. No, <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very, very much for chatting today. Um, you, you know how much you mean to me, and um, and yeah, I'm I'm very excited to um to to have tomorrow already coming and going, and um, looking forward to the next chapter of our friendship. Thanks, Clay. It's really nice to know you too. Yarn about you is a Centre Stage Creative production. Follow us on Facebook by searching Yarn About You or visit yarnaboutyou.com.au for more information about the podcast and our guests.